morning. And I wish we could be like, oh, such a small crowd. Why don't we, why don't we all gather together and just sit with one another? But we can't. Someday. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Psalm 62. All right. Um, it's good to be with you guys. This morning, we are going to continue our series that we've been in uh, for the summer so far. We're calling it Worship by the Book, and we're taking the summer to survey the book of Psalms in how they show us different aspects of relating to God, of a healthy relationship with God. And thus far, in the last few weeks, we've seen how we can praise God, we can bring our laments to God, and we can give thanks to God. Today we are going to dwell on how we can trust in God, how we can place our trust in God. During the intro to this series, when we were looking through Psalm 1, I read a passage in Jeremiah that said, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Trust is an integral part of any relationship. And I mean any. Take your barber. I have a barber. It's convenient to go to him because he works in the, in the first floor of my hospital. It's just so easy. I can go there on my lunch break. It's awesome. But I don't really trust him yet. <laughs> he, <laughs> he's convenient to go to, but I feel like every time I go to him, and I've been going to him for about a year, and all of this is, of course, back when we used to get haircuts. Uh, and people tell me you can get a haircut now, and I'm, I'm like, uh, not yet. No, I'm not ready. Um, but I still have to kind of coach him through it, you know, like, ah, oh, it's still a little puffy up here on the up, up the sides. Can you just bring it in a little bit? And he's like, oh, yeah, no problem. So I can't yet say, yeah, the usual, go ahead, just take it away, Lloyd. Um, but my trust in him is growing. Over time, it's getting better. Um, and, you know, with any relationship, uh, the more intimate it is, the more close the relationship, the more important trust is in that relationship. The trust between a husband and a wife, for instance, it's vital. And if that trust is broken, it's catastrophic. For that relationship. The same goes in varying degrees for trust between friends, between coworkers, between between an employer and an employee. Um, literally everyone you know, there's some degree of trust that is there that needs to remain intact for the relationship to continue. And if our relationship with God is the most important relationship we have, and I would suggest that it is then whether or not we can trust God becomes an, a, a very important question. So today we're going to study Psalm 62 and learn the trajectory of trust in God. We're going to learn that trust in God, it moves from the theoretical to the personal. And then it moves to the prescriptive, it, a.k.a. it preaches. 
And then finally, it moves to the practical. So our trust in God moves from theoretical to personal, prescriptive, and practical. Let's go ahead and read Psalm 62. I'm just going to raise my podium. All right, Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Let's pray. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for a time to think over if and whether and that we can trust in you, that we can place our trust on you. Let us grow to know that more thoroughly this morning. Let us grow to practice that more practically this morning. Um, and we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So going back to the marriage relationship for a second. This, of course, is a relationship built on trust. This is built into our marriage ceremonies, into our very vows that we say to one another. Things we say are like this, I, Nick, take thee, Anna, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part. Now, does Anna know for sure that if we were to become poor or if she were to become gravely ill, that I would still love and cherish her? Does she know that for sure on that day? She can't know for sure, but based on our relationship thus far, based on our history, she trusts that, yes, I will. But it's purely theoretical on September 15th, 2012. It's purely theoretical until it's not. Why else would we be so impressed by a wife who lovingly sticks by her husband despite becoming paralyzed from the neck down? They made those vows. Why are we so impressed? 
because there's a difference between a theoretical trust and when it gets personal. And we're amazed by that, and we're inspired by that. That's what we see here in the first six verses of this psalm. David is the author, as it says in the little intro there. And if you're not familiar with David, he is Israel's most famous king. He is Jesus' grandfather to the 27th power, give or take. And he experienced some crazy stuff. His own father-in-law tried to kill him in order to not allow him to take the throne. His own son tried to kill him to take the throne from him and everything in between. And we see here in Psalm 62 an almost verbatim refrain of trust in God in verses 1 and 2 and then repeated in verses 5 and 6. But between those refrains is a horrible experience of persecution by other people in verses 3 and 4. Verses 1 and 2 is David's marriage vows of sorts. It's, it's his general commitment of trust in God. And it's beautiful. You can reread it. Verses 1, it says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And yet, this general commitment is theoretical until verses 3 and 4 come along. I call these circumstances trust God sessions. A trust God sesh is an opportunity to practice this transition from trusting God in general, in theory, to trusting God right now, today, with this circumstance, this trial, this relationship. This is what David experiences here. In general, he trusts in God, like we read in verses 1 and 2, but now it's becoming more personal. He is being attacked by evil people. This evil not only topples the strong, but it finishes off the weak and achieves its ends with lies. David is in a gut-punching, interpersonal predicament. He is in danger. And notice how he responds. He repeats his initial commitment of trust in God with some notable changes. Verses 5 and 6 read, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Now, if you read them quickly, and if you, if you just read this psalm quickly, you might not get that subtle change that happens from verses 1 and 2 to when he repeats in verses 5 and 6. He is no longer talking in generalities to the reading audience. Now he is modeling what he wants his readers and us to do when stuff hits the fan. He preaches to himself. Look at that. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He, he doesn't just say, My soul waits for God alone. Yeah, it does. No, he's saying, Soul, wait for God alone. This trust is no longer theoretical. Now it's personal. He is out on a limb. His eggs are all in the God basket. 
and his prayer changes as a result. And then at the end of verse 6, notice another more subtle change. This is in the Hebrew, and it might not be reflected in your, your translation, but in the ESV, we read at the end of verse 6, I shall not be shaken. Whereas before, in verse 2, there was a, there was a modifier for that. In verse 2, he said, I will not be greatly shaken. With this trust God practice sesh, David's faith in God grew. At first, because of his trust in God, he's like, oh, I probably won't be shaken much. I won't be shaken greatly. But now, he knows he won't be shaken at all. I won't be shaken, period, no matter what comes next. Now, this is how trust God sessions work. They build on each other. And although we don't hope for difficulties like David experiences here, we can, however, be thankful that God uses them in our lives in this way. Our New Testament confirms this reality. Paul writes in Romans 5 that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James echoes this and puts it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in short, and in cliche, practice trust makes perfect trust. Difficulties are guaranteed in this life, but we have a God that uses them to move our trust from the theoretical into the personal. And then it moves into the prescriptive. In verse 7, David sums up both of the refrains he has already repeated. He says in verse 7, On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. There's one major addition here in verse 7. Not only does David's salvation rest on God, his ultimate destiny rests on God, but also his David's glory. Not only David's future, but David's present. The voice paraphrase version says, on God rests my salvation and my significance. For David, when God looks good, he looks good. Trusting in God is not about how he's going to get out of a difficult circumstance. Trusting in God means that David's very reputation is tied up in God's reputation. When the dust settles, if God comes out looking good, then that's enough. David now extrapolates what he learned in this one trial, in this one experience, in this one difficulty, and he extrapolates it out to all people at all times. Look at verse 8. He says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He takes what he learned in secret, in his own heart, in his own life, and he prescribes it to everyone on earth. His trust in God has become prescriptive. He's like, this will work. Here you go. 
hands him a prescription. It preaches. This is why personal testimony is so it's such an important and useful tool that God uses to spread the gospel. When someone who has experienced a similar hardship as you learns that God is the one who sustained you through it with peace, with comfort, with joy, then that preaches to them the goodness of trusting in this God. We can look at that person and truly say, like David, God is a refuge for us. Not just for you, not just for me, but for us. David suggests to all people how to initiate this trusting relationship in verse 8. He says, pour out your hearts before him. He is a God who listens. He is a God who we can spontaneously unburden to. And notice the difference, the contrast, the, the varied experiences of this relationship. In verse 1, David was saying how he waits in silence before God. He has this expectant understanding that he doesn't need to say anything in this moment. He can just be silent before God. And yet here he is also saying, pour out your hearts before him. Let it all out. There's that spontaneous unburdening, but also a disciplined expectancy of what he will do. Our relationship can grow from that, that just letting it all out to knowing that we can just say, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. There's always going to be a new trust God session that, that throws you for a loop, that comes along and just blindsides you tests the foundation of your trust in God. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with God for a year or 40 years. There's always going to be a new type that tests the metal of it. And that's why the whole Bible is full of commands to remember. We can confront every new thing with remembering that God, uh, that God brought us through that other thing. It builds, it builds, it builds. God rescued us from that decision or that relational conflict. That's why we take communion every week. Not only to remember that God has brought us through, you know, difficulties in our lives, but to remember the primary thing that God has brought us out of and into. Out of death into life. Out of darkness into light. So, our trust in God moves from the theoretical to the personal to the prescriptive where we're preaching to ourselves and we're sharing that with others. And also, which brings us to our last point, and most basic, trust, our trust in God is practical. All of this personal reflection and prescriptive preaching launches David into a compare and contrast rant between God and man. The question to be answered here is, who is more worthy of our trust? God or human beings? Who is the more practical person in which to place our ultimate trust? Let's reread verses 9 through 12. He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust 
in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render it to a man according to his work. We, were, we encounter what's called a merism here in verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. Now, this is saying from the lowest to the highest and everything in between. None of them are worthy of our trust. Every person in between are equally without proper substance in which to place our trust. That word breath is the same word that we read in Ecclesiastes over and over again. Vanity, a puff of wind. Compare that imagery with how David describes God. Seven times in the first seven verses in this psalm, he gives God the title of rock, refuge, or fortress. Which can handle your burdens, a rock or a bubble? A fortress or a breath? One commentator writes that the point then is not so much that we have nothing to fear from man, although according to Jesus that's ultimately true as well, but it's that we have nothing to hope from him. Placing our ultimate trust in people over God is ultimately empty because they have nothing to offer us in the ultimate sense. Now, what is the other elephant in the room that many of us also place our trust in besides other people? Money. (laughs) And ourselves, yeah, of course. Verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. That's the same word for trust in verse 8. David's comparing them. In verse 8, he said, trust in him at all times. And in verse 10, he says, put no trust in riches, either ill-gotten or just regular old riches. David exhorts us to be careful lest the same level of trust for God be applied to our financial situation. And notice here, he doesn't just call out ill-gotten gain, like I said. He calls out settling our hearts on money. One commentator writes that according to David, absorption with riches counts as no less perilous than a life of crime. He sort of puts them on the same level. Jesus jumps on this during his Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he goes on to say that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And for David and for Jesus, placing our trust in how we are doing financially is foolish. But not just because it crowds out our devotion and our trust for God, but it is ultimately not going to work. Thieves break in and steal money. 
Hackers can get in and steal our identities. It's not a sustainable place to put our hearts. So if human beings, others, and ourselves, and money aren't where we should place our trust, and God is, why is that the case? What makes God the ultimate person that we should throw all our energy and devotion and love and trust toward? Why is it practical to trust a God that we can't even see? David caps off his psalm here with three characteristics of God that make trusting in him the most obvious answer to life's most complex problems. Verse 11 and 12, he says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That last bit there in verse 12 contrasts the descriptions of the humans previously described in the psalm. God is a straight shooter. He deals fairly with us, unlike people. So here we learn that God is powerful, God is loving, and God is just. Period. The combination of these three traits make God more worthy of our trust than anyone and anything else. David even places a poetic exclamation point on it in verse 11. Sort of a, one of those Spanish exclamation points that comes prior He says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. It's sort of his way of saying, get ready. Here it is. This is why we can trust God. We, of course, need all of these traits in order to place our full trust in God. Take one and without the other, it doesn't work. One commentator substitutes the word love for grace, and he writes, power without grace does not admit of any trust, and grace without power is deprived of its ultimate seriousness. God is simultaneously all-powerful, all-loving, and just. Oftentimes, the rubber meets the road for us in, in this whole concept of trust in our thoughts about the future. I know that's true for me. Whether the future is known or unknown, How do these attributes of God apply to our worries and our anxieties about the future? For me, especially if the the future is known, let's say, you know, you sign up for something and you know it's coming. You, You regret maybe signing up for it or there's a conversation you need to have with somebody, somebody you love perhaps, and it's coming. It's It's next Tuesday, (laughs) and you're worried about it, and you're having trouble trusting God with that conversation, with with that circumstance that's, that's approaching quickly. What you need right now is God's love that tells you, yeah, yeah, that's coming. It is, but I love you, and... I will give you my power when that day comes. You don't need it today. Today you just need to know that I love you. And when that day comes, you will have the power to face it because I will empower you. That's the God we worship. 
We need God's power then, but God's love now, and vice versa, depending on the situation. And so we are each left at a fork in the road. Place our trust in God or place it in other people or money or worse, be left undecided. Being undecided sets us up for a roller coaster of a life, trusting in whatever will bring us happiness in each moment. Health, security, relationships, wealth, self-salvation, comfort, pleasure, excitement. If you're undecided this morning, I want to encourage you to meditate on the point in human history that exhibits each of these three characteristics of God at the same time, the cross of Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus displayed the ultimate intangible act of justice, love, and power. Out of love, Jesus took on our just punishment and died. In doing so, he defeated death and was resurrected in power and offers a firm foundation of salvation to all human beings who would simply place their trust in him. He is the most practical person you could possibly place your trust in for your whole life and for tomorrow. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are worthy of our trust, that you are trustworthy. In this time of uncertainty, of, of upheaval, of chaos, uh, of ups and downs, God, we want to we want our trust in you to, to move from theoretical to personal. We trust in you today. We trust in you with our jobs, with our families, with our country, with our city. Thank you that you have displayed your attributes and therefore have displayed the trustworthiness that you deserve. Once again, God, we come to you and we just lay it all before you. We lay, we want to lay our hearts before you, to pour out our hearts before you so that we can then dwell near you and wait for you in silence. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the tangible way that he displayed your trustworthiness. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. All right, we're going to continue worshiping uh, for a couple songs and uh, take communion as well. Uh, during the song, uh, go ahead and, and do that as you feel comfortable and led. Uh, there should be a cup with a wafer uh, in the pew, and we'll...